ஓசோமாசமய தமசோமோதிர்கமய மூர்மாமமய Leaders from the unreal to the real. Leaders from darkness to light. Leaders from death to immortality. Om peace. Peace. Peace be unto us. Peace be unto all. Friends, the subject for today's service is turning toward the divine. Life in the world is characterized by pairs of opposites. Happiness, misery, success, failure, praise, blame. These things alternate. We don't get one to the exclusion of the other. If we seek happiness... misery comes in uninvited so life life goes on like this we keep gathering experiences pressurable experiences painful experiences most of the time painful experiences and there does not seem to be any escape from this cycle of happiness and misery most of the time it is misery and that's because of what vedanta calls maya maya is life in the world as we live it the life of contradictions the life of uh, these pairs of opposites our being attached to this world all this is explained by maya and when people don't have a higher goal in life they become so much enmeshed in this maya that there does not seem to be any escape at all shri krishna teaches in the gita this divine maya of mine composed of the three gunas is hard to cross but only those who worship me can cross this maya so this maya is in fact a power power of god power of brahman brahman is the only reality and this power of brahman inheres in brahman even as burning power inheres in fire teaches shri ramakrishna shri ramakrishna further says just as you cannot think of fire without its burning power milk without its whiteness or the snake without its wriggling motion even so you cannot think of brahman without its power shakti and you cannot think of shakti without brahman both are identical says shri ramakrishna so this maya is a power inherent in brahman it conceals reality from us it hides reality from us so this maya 
is some kind of a screen between us and God. It makes God unreal to us. That is its power of concealment, our anashakti. It's a twofold power. First is this power of concealment. Second is the power of distortion. Vikshepa shakti. Maya distorts our perception. It makes the unreal real and the real unreal. We take Brahman to be this world. Vedanta teaches that what exists is one. What exists is that spiritual reality. But we take it to be this universe of names and forms. That Brahman appears to us as this universe of names and forms because of Maya. And this Maya also makes us mistake our true self for this body and mind. We think we are this body, we are this mind. We think we are limited beings. We are absolutely unaware of the divine core of our being. We are unaware that we are divinities on earth. Shishankara, while commenting on one of the important passages of the Katopanishad, describes this Maya. He says, Alas, how unfathomable, inscrutable, and variegated is this Maya. Though identical with the Supreme Reality and instructed as such, none grasps the fact that he is the Supreme Self. On the other hand, even without being told, people accept as their self the aggregate of body and senses under the idea, I am the son of such and such, though this aggregate is only an object of perception, like parts and so on. Indeed, it is through the Maya of the Supreme Being that everyone revolves in the cycle of birth and death. So this inscrutable power of Maya makes us oriented to the world. He puts it beautifully here. We've been repeatedly taught by the scriptures that we are the self, we are divine beings, yet we don't. That doesn't seem to be real to us. But no one has told us, but we think we are this body. Our true self is this body, true self is this mind. And this true self is attached to other things, other beings. No one has told us this, yet we are attached. That is how inscrutable this Maya is. Shishankar also says, in the same Upanishad, in his commentary, with a solicitude more than that of thousands of parents, the Vedas teach us about the oneness of the Atman. One should give up pride and the perception of differences born of an atheistic and argumentative attitude and eagerly aspire after self-realization. So the Vedas, the Upanishads, which teach us 
what is our real nature what is the true nature of god what's the goal of life they've been teaching us this again and again in the same upanishad you'll find certain teachings recurring from verse to verse all this to drive home the point that we are not this body mind complex but we are divinities and realization of this divinity or self realization or god realization all of which mean the same thing is the goal of life a seer in the shvetashvatara upanishad exclaims this way i have discovered that great luminous reality beyond all darkness by knowing him alone can one transcend birth and death there is no other way to the supreme goal nanyav pantha vidyate ayanaya that we study in the shvetashvatara upanishad so to go beyond these pairs of opposites to go beyond maya we need to turn toward the divine we need to make god realization the goal of our life shishankara says in the viveka chudamani if after getting this rare human birth a person does not struggle for self realization he commits suicide as it were because of his attachment to unreal things he commits suicide because he kills apparently his own higher self he kills his higher self of course the higher self the atman cannot be killed by weapons it cannot be burned by fire all that is true here it is a figurative expression a person who is deeply attached to the world unreal things apparently kills his own higher self means what his own higher self is alien to him so since he kills his own higher self he commits suicide as it were a person who doesn't struggle for self realization shri ramana maharishi a great sage who lived in the 19th 20th century who propagated vichara marga the way of self inquiry says this about the importance of self realization the one who limits the self by believing himself to be the body and the mind has killed his own self for killing the self he has to be punished the punishment is birth and death and continuous misery so these are figurative expression in a way killing the self but the point is this realization of our true nature realization of the atman is the one goal of human life which can lead us to fulfillment all other goals have to necessarily end in frustration and misery but for us to know this it takes time it needs god's grace it needs the power of our good impressions so sometime or other this truth dawns on us what we gain from this world is this all to human life or is there anything higher 
Is there a higher goal of human life? Is there a higher dimension of my personality? All these questions begin to arise when the right time comes, when we are done with our quota of enjoyment in this world. And then we begin to pray to God. Pray to God for devotion. Pray to God for love, for love's sake. Earlier, we would have prayed to God for relief from some physical or mental afflictions. Or, we might have prayed to God for success in worldly life, power, name, fame, prosperity. But now, when wisdom dawns on us, we begin to pray to God for devotion, for discrimination, for knowledge, for detachment. All that happens when the right time comes. So self-realization or God-realization is the goal of life. And how to realize this? If it were so easy, everyone would have aspired after it. Everyone would have been aware of this goal of self-realization and would have realized the self. But we find that most people, the majority of humanity, does not have any use for this teaching. They don't get to hear about this. They're happy or miserable with what the world dishes out to them. That's because of the nature of the mind. The mind and the senses. The Katopanishad says, the creator inflicted an injury as it were by creating the senses and the mind outward. The mind wants to be in contact with one of the senses and the senses are eager to come in touch with their sense objects. So the creator inflicted an injury as it were by making the mind and senses outward directed. But, continues the Katopanishad, a few people endowed with discrimination, kashchidhiraha, a few people endowed with discrimination seek immortality, turn their gaze inward and perceive the inmost Atman. So the requirement is discrimination and desirous of immortality called the Mumukshutva in Sanskrit. That intense desire for freedom. That intense desire for freedom and turning their gaze inward. Gaze is only indicative, it is not exhaustive. It doesn't mean just closing our eyes, looking at the tip of our nose. Turning the gaze inward means turning the eyes inward, indicative, turning all the other four senses also inward. Inward means where? Toward the self. Turning toward the divine. So we need discrimination, we need to have that intense desire for uh, freedom and we need to turn the mind and the senses inward toward the divine. So that is what we learn from the Katopanishad. Now realization of the self seems to be some kind of an abstract ideal. We have four yogas, four ways 
to the realization of this self. Karma Yoga, the way of selfless work. Bhakti Yoga, the way of devotion. Raja Yoga, the way of contemplation. And Jnana Yoga, the way of knowledge. Of these four ways, Bhakti Yoga, the way of devotion, is comparatively easy in that it facilitates a Godward turn to our natural impulses and tendencies. So about this way of devotion, how to turn toward the divine, we have many teachings from our scriptures. We'll consider here the teachings given in the Bhagavad Gita. Sri Krishna describes in the 12th chapter of the Gita four stages of devotion, four steps in turning ourselves toward the divine, four steps in descending order of difficulty. He says in the 12th chapter, fix your mind on me, fix your buddhi on me, and from then on, you will begin to live in me. Of this, there is no doubt. Fix your mind on me. Fixing our mind on God means making this mind known for its obstinacy, restlessness, being in a state of motion all the time, settling this mind on God who dwells in the core of our being. According to Vedanta, God is all-pervading. But it is not that He just lives somewhere beyond the cloud. He is right in our own hearts. Sri Ramakrishna teaches that a landlord could be found anywhere in his property, but he is especially present in the parlor room where he receives visitors. Similarly, God is all-pervading, but he is especially present in the heart of a devotee. So fixing your mind on God means re-educating the mind. He says if you fix your mind on God, if you fix your buddhi on God, you will live in me hereafter. Now fixing the mind on God means the mind that is oriented to God, the mind thinks of God, the mind repeats God's name, the mind is always prayerful. That means fixing the mind on God. Fixing buddhi on God, what does that mean? Buddhi is the seat of discrimination. It's a seat of resolve. Whenever we make a resolution, buddhi comes into picture. Whenever we exercise the will, buddhi comes into picture. Whenever we make conscious decisions, buddhi comes into picture. Fix your buddhi on me means what? Sri Ramanuja explains this in his commentary on this verse. He says, Strengthen yourself by the conviction that God alone is the supreme object to be attained. That resolution, that conviction, determination, all these are qualities of buddhi. Strengthen yourself with this firm conviction that God alone is the one goal to be attained. 
that is what is meant by fixing your buddhi on god then shri krishna says when you do that undoubtedly you will live in me hereafter now here again this hereafter in sanskrit it's called atavurdham atavurdham na samshayah nivasishya simayeva atavurdham na samshayah atavurdham hereafter is usually interpreted as after the fall of the body but here again shri ramanuja gives a wonderful interpretation hereafter means you fix your mind on me you fix your buddhi on me from that moment onward from then on you will begin to live in me of this there is no doubt vedanta doesn't say you need to wait till death to meet god to know god you can know god here and now you can live in this body not being attached to the body not being attached to the mind but being one with god you can realize the self you can realize god here and now so this verse says fix your mind on me fix your buddhi on me and from that moment onward you will begin to live in me of this there is no doubt so this first step we can easily see a person whose mind is fixed in god all the time buddhi on god all the time this refers to a very advanced class of aspirants who have this yearning for god burning within them right from their childhood or pure from their very birth so this first discipline refers to a very advanced stage then in the next verse shri krishna says in case you are not able to hold fast your mind to me steadily then seek to reach me o arjuna by the yoga of constant practice practice abhyasa yoga if your mind doesn't habitually tend toward god try practicing it this practice is very important in the 6th chapter of the bhagavad gita arjuna wants to know from shri krishna how to control this restless mind this mind is restless obstinate fickle to control this mind i think is like trying to control wind shri krishna concedes the point he says yes the mind is obstinate the mind is restless but it can be controlled by two things practice and detachment abhyasa and vairagya so this practice shri krishna teaches in the gita elsewhere setting the mind firmly on the self under the direction of a steadfast buddhi one should practice tranquility little by little and abstain from every kind of thought whenever the unsteady and fickle mind strays from the ideal it should be brought to abide in the self alone that is practice when the mind keeps straying toward the senses toward the objects rein in the mind bring it back to rest on the ideal that is what the gita teaches do it with patience do it with perseverance but 
repeated practice is what is required. Because the mind is habituated to doing things in a particular way for so many years, for so many lifetimes. It's outward directed, we just saw in that important mantra from the Katopanishad. The mind is outward directed to make it think of God who dwells within. It's a great struggle. That is the greatest challenge in human life. Animals cannot take up the challenge. Reigning in an outward going mind and fixing it on its source. This challenge is reserved exclusively for human beings. And how formidable, how difficult this challenge is. Shishankara describes in his commentary on this verse. The verse which said, the creator inflicted an injury as it were by making the senses and the mind go outward. Shishankara says, giving an inward turn to this mind is as difficult as reversing the course of a river and driving it back to its source. Even to think of it, a river originates from the mountains, flows down, and somewhere on its way, on its way it goes through so many places and finally merges with the ocean. And at any point, we choose to drive the river back to its source. That's an impossible task. But Shankara says, trying to reverse the course of the mind is as difficult as this. That doesn't mean it's not possible with regard to the mind. The mind can be trained by practice. This practice is essential. And where practice for us means spiritual practice. Trying to keep taps on the mind. Trying to cultivate more and more alertness. Trying to do work as worship. Trying to be steadfast in our spiritual practice. All this falls under practice. Sri Ramakrishna was once taken to a circus. There he saw an English woman doing a very incredible feat. A horse was going round and round and above the horse at definite intervals were hung iron rings. The horse was moving in a circular fashion below the rings and above the horse stood on her one leg this English woman and the rings would be in front of her. She would dive through the rings once again to alight on the horse with her one leg. And she did it with clockwork precision. Sri Ramakrishna was amazed. His mind was so special that any ordinary incident would always remind him of God. He said, that English woman, she did that incredible feat a little misstep would have meant she would have been thrown off and whatever kind of injury or even death possibly. But every time she passed through the ring and with unerring step she alighted on the horse and she went. This was going on. Sri Ramakrishna said, he said to M, M had accompanied him, did you see how that English woman 
stood on one foot on her horse while it ran like lightning. How difficult a feat that must be. She must have practiced a long time. The slightest carelessness and she would break her arms and legs. She might even be killed. One faces the same difficulty in the life of a householder. A few succeed in it through the grace of God and as a result of their spiritual practice. But most people fail. Entering the world, they become more and more involved in it. They drown in worldliness and suffer agonies of death. A few only, like Janaka, have succeeded through the power of their austerity in leading the spiritual life as householders. Therefore, spiritual practice is extremely necessary. Otherwise, one cannot rightly live in the world. So there is the second stage of devotion that Sri Krishna describes in the Gita, 12th chapter. If your mind is not habitually fixed on me, if your buddhi is not fixed on me, take recourse to this Abhyasa Yoga. So this repeated practice is the way. Sri Ramakrishna gives one more example. He referred to the women of the carpenter families in Kamarpukur. That is one thing with Sri Ramakrishna. These spiritual truths, these important teachings, he had a special knack of teaching them through everyday examples. So describing this yoga of practice, he referred to these women of carpenter families in Kamarpukur who would make flattened rice from rice, so rice soaked in water and then that rice would be pounded in a mortar with a pestle falling on it with regular intervals. It is a mechanical contraption and a woman would take care to see that the rice in the mortar got flattened in a uniform way. So when the pestle went up, she would put her hand in and then distribute the rice that was inside. And this mechanical contraption would be actually made to function by someone else behind, some other lady, with a pedal. As she pressed the pedal, this puzzle would regularly go inside the mortar and flatten this rice. Sri Ramakrishna gives this example. This lady who puts her hand now and then to evenly distribute the rice that was being flattened was at the same time having her baby on her lap. She was nursing that baby and there was a customer in her front and she tells him, first settle your account, whatever you owe me and then you can have a, a fresh quantity of this flattened rice. Now Sri Ramakrishna says, she does three things. One, she puts her hand into the mortar periodically to see that the rice was evenly flattened and she nurses her baby and she is transacting business with this customer. And a moment's carelessness can mean her hand getting pounded instead of the rice in the mortar. So Sri Ramakrishna says she does all this with 15 out of 16 parts of her mind 
on the pestle and the mortar. With the remaining one-sixteenth of her mind, she transacts all this business. She nurses the child, transacts this business with the customer. Similarly, says Sri Ramakrishna, when you live in the world, try to put your whole mind, 15 out of 16 parts of your mind on guard, and go about your everyday life in the world with the remaining one-sixteenth of the mind. He says, that doesn't happen spontaneously. That is what is called abhyasa. That woman wouldn't have succeeded it on her very first day. So that needs long practice. So Sri Ramakrishna says, practice. He says, likewise, he who leads the life of the householder should devote 15 parts of his mind to God. Otherwise, he will face ruin and fall into the clutches of death. He should perform the duties of the world with only one part of his mind. So that is practice, regularity in practice, not giving up in the face of failure because we couldn't be regular for a few days, giving it up completely. You know, Swami Vivekananda says, even if you fail a thousand times, take up the ideal once more and struggle. He also says, don't worry about these failures. It doesn't mean we can repeatedly fail. It's not a license to fail repeatedly or keep on backsliding repeatedly. But don't curse yourselves. Don't rob yourself of your own self-effort because you fail a few times. Swami Vivekananda says, I have never heard a wall tell a lie, but the wall remains a wall. I have never heard a cow tell a lie. It remains a cow. It's only man who tells lies including women. But it's only man who can think of God and women. So it's only human beings who can think of God, who can pray to God. They may tell lies, they may do other bad things, but it is only they who can reform themselves. It's only human beings who can have a higher ideal, think of God and ultimately become one with God. So practice is what is required undeterred by any obstacles or repeated failures. So that is the second prescription Sri Krishna gives in the Gita. The first was, fix your mind on me, fix your buddhi on me, and from then on you will live in me, undoubtedly. Second, if you cannot do it, take recourse to Abhyasa Yoga, Yoga of Practice. He comes down one step further. He says, if you are incapable of constant practice, then devote yourself to my service. For even by rendering service to me, you will attain perfection. That is the third step. If you are incapable of practice, then do work for my sake. Render service to me. Now, service to God can have several shades of meaning. Participating in acts of worship, worshipping God ourselves or helping others, assisting those who perform worship, being of some service to some temples, all this can mean working for God. But we need to consider a wider implication of this. According to Vedanta, it is God who has become all this. What exists is one. God is not only 
the instrumental cause of this universe is also the material cause. When you consider a pot being fashioned by a potter from clay, the potter is different from clay. Clay is the material cause. And the potter who fashions this pot is the instrumental cause or the efficient cause. So the clay is the material cause. The potter is the efficient or instrumental cause. And a pot is being fashioned out of clay. Unlike this, God creates the universe and living beings out of himself. Here again, this is not creation, it is projection. And the Mundaka Upanishad gives this brilliant illustration of this projection. God does not create us out of nothing, but out of himself. Just as a spider weaves its web out of a secretion from its own body. And at one point, if it is not satisfied with the length of a web, a particular strand of the web, it withdraws that secretion into itself. So that is one example. Just as the secretion comes out of the spider and that builds the web, even so, we are all parts of God. This universe is part of God. And the second example that the Upanishad gives is, just as plants grow from this earth. And the third example is, just as nails and hair grow in a living person. Similarly, because nail and hair, they are also part of a living person. And plants, they are part of earth. Similarly, the universe and living beings are none other than God. The Purusha Suktam, one of the important parts of the Rig Veda and the Yajurveda, says that only a part of the Lord's glory, the glory of the Supreme Person, is manifest as the universe and living beings. The rest are all hidden. Padosya Vishwa Bhutani Tripadasya Amritam Divi that means only a part of his glory is manifest as this universe and living beings. So God is manifest as living beings, as the universe. So service to others in the spirit of worship of God that dwells in them also amounts to working for God's sake. Only we need to have this attitude. Swami Vivekananda says, when you get an opportunity to be of service to others, don't think too much of yourself or don't think that you are superior to them in any way. Don't stand on a pedestal and have a coin in your hand and then say, Oh beggar, here it is, take this. Swami Vivekananda says, The beggar, the recipient, by accepting your charity, gives you an opportunity to manifest selflessness, to grow closer to God. So it is you who are supposed to be thankful to him not he to you. So when we try to serve others in this spirit of worship, we don't expect even a thank you from them. So there is no heartburn because someone has not thanked us, because someone has not returned favor for what we have done to them. It is just worship. There is some need. I am aware of that need. I have the capacity to give. I give. That's all. There is nothing more to it.
When we do it that way, Swami Vivekananda says, that's a very powerful spiritual practice that helps us manifest the divinity which is potential in us. So serving others in a spirit of worship, that also amounts to working for God. That is the third step that Sri Krishna describes. And in the fourth step, Sri Krishna says, this is for those who cannot engage themselves in God's work. Sri Krishna says, take refuge in me, and thus controlling the mind, give up the fruits of all your actions. Whatever you do, do it as an offering to me. If you cannot directly serve God, if you cannot directly assist someone doing worship, if you cannot bring to mind that you are serving God when you serve others, Sri Krishna says, whatever you do, do it as an offering to me. I repeat this, take refuge in me, that is first, and thus controlling the mind, give up the fruits of all your actions. It doesn't mean doing work, doing any work in whichever way we like and then calling it karma yoga or bhakti yoga. Because the first three disciplines are centered around God. Somehow or other, we need to be devoted to God to be able to do the first three disciplines. Fix your mind on me, buddhi on me. Take recourse to practice. Do everything for my sake. Look upon others as manifestations of God and serve them. So in all these places you have devotion to God. But here, you are trying to convert anything and everything you do, not directly connected to God. You are trying to connect all that to God. So that needs a sense of surrender, take refuge in me. Otherwise, we can be just carried away by the current of work and that work could be a source of bondage. So here again, because we are discussing four different stages of devotion. So devotion finds expression in this fourth way by two things. One is taking refuge in God. Be dependent on God. God will take care of me. I am not able to do the other things, but whatever I do, I try to do it as worship of God. So be, take refuge in God and reign in your mind with a controlled mind. This reigning in the mind, controlling the mind didn't figure in the first three disciplines. Because as we saw earlier, devotion to God was part of these three disciplines. But here, we need to bring in God. We need to offer the fruits of our actions to God. We need to offer what we do to God. We need to offer the sense of agency, the sense of doership. I am the doer. That is there strong in us. And that is required for us to practice spiritual discipline, for us to exercise the power of discrimination. But we gradually surrender this also to God and learn to work more and more as instruments in the hands of the divine, not thinking too much of ourselves. Swami Ramakrishnananda, Sri Ramakrishna's disciple, says, Does a pen ever complain that it has written so many letters? The letters were written by one who wields the pen. The pen itself didn't do anything. Similarly, Swami Ramakrishnananda says, 
cultivate this attitude you are an instrument in the hands of god whatever he lets you accomplish do it with that attitude of surrender god is the prime mover he has given me strength to do this let me do this as worship and shri krishna teaches in the gita how to offer everything to god how to be free from attachment to work and attachment to its results too whatever you do whatever you eat whatever gifts you make whatever austerities you perform whatever offerings you make in a sacrifice do all that as an offering to me that's a great teaching we find in the bhagavad gita whatever we do we do it as an offering to god easier said than done it's true because it is spiritual practice otherwise everyone would have done everyone would have realized god so we try to remember while doing work that it is something to be offered to god on completion when we try to keep this in mind what we do what we think becomes qualitatively better we don't do anything and everything we don't think of any thought and every thought because it is supposed to be offered to god is it good enough to be offered to god at the end of it that kind of a discrimination keeps on getting sharpened when we follow this discipline if it is not worthy of being offered to god let me not do it so i undergo a qualitative transformation within so do everything for my sake and what happens then shri krishna teaches if you do this what you do what you eat whatever austerities you perform whatever gifts you make whatever offerings you make in a sacrifice if you offer all that to god what happens then you escape from the bondage of work you become free from both good and evil effects of work that's a very important teaching in the gita work can be a source of bondage depending on how we do it work itself is not a source of bondage but how we do work can be a source of bondage or a way to freedom and shri krishna teaches here how to convert work into spiritual practice how work can lead us to freedom by offering everything to god so we offer what we do to god we offer the fruits of actions to god that means i'm not attached to the outcome that is what that important verse in the second chapter of the gita also teaches to work alone you have the right not to the fruits thereof what does that mean you work don't have any ultimate goal in mind or any objective in mind just work in a random way no there is a saying in sanskrit which says even a fool does not embark on an enterprise without a purpose in mind so we have a purpose all right we have an end to be attained how to attain that end we discuss the pros and cons of different means to be adopted to achieve this end and choose those means which are unquestionable which are above board so once we do that 
There is no point in worrying about the end. We are offering it to God. So that means, since we are going to offer it to God, we do our best, physically, mentally, intellectually, whatever needs to be done to address the situation, to do that work, to accomplish that end, we do our best because it's to be offered to God. So when we have done our best, there is no scope for worry. If the outcome is not in line with our expectation because of some unseen factor, which the Gita mentions elsewhere, there is nothing to be worried about it because I have done my best. There is no point in worrying about the outcome as I am doing work because the energies of the mind which should have been focused on the work in hand get dissipated by thinking about the outcome thereby affecting the quality of work and the outcome also. It's kind of a vicious circle. I think about the future when I am at the present so that affects my concentration on the work and when concentration on my work is lacking, that is certainly going to adversely affect the outcome of the work. So Sri Krishna's teaching in the second chapter is a very sane advice how to go about work. Concentrate on the work in hand because you are going to offer it to God and you are going to give it your, your best with your whole mind on the work. So what happens then? The mind doesn't flit anymore. The mind doesn't dance anymore. We are not restless while doing work. The mind is calm. When the mind is calm, we accomplish more. Says Swami Vivekananda, the calmer we are, the less disturbed our nerves, the more shall we love, and the better will our work be. These are all Mahamantras given in English. Given here right in this city, 1895, lectures on Karma Yoga. The calmer we are, the less disturbed our nerves, the more shall we love and the better will our work be. So that calmness is a result of doing work as worship, offering everything to God, taking refuge in God and reigning in the mind. The mind is reined in when you don't worry about the outcome. The mind is reined in when you don't let the mind think about anything and everything. Not necessarily the outcome, it could think of anything. Our hands are busy, but the mind could be busy with something else. And we have this related teaching from Swami Vivekananda, which we have seen a number of times. Whenever you do anything, do not think of anything beyond. Do it as worship the highest worship. Dedicate your whole life to it for the time being. That's another mantra in English. You do anything, whatever Sri Krishna says, whatever you eat, whatever you do, whatever gifts you make, you do anything. Whenever you do anything, do not think of anything beyond. That means do not let your mind think of anything beyond the work in hand. The mind has a tendency to think of anything and everything under the sun when we are doing something. So Swamiji says, do not think of anything beyond. Do it as worship. The highest worship. And dedicate your whole life to it for the time being. That is karma yoga. That makes the mind calm. 
and the nerves are less disturbed the more shall be low and the better will our work be these are swami vivekananda's teachings so there is the fourth teaching that shri krishna gives arjuna and through him to all of us do everything for my sake when you do that through that also you will come to me actually this step though it is supposed to be the fourth in the descending order of difficulty it's not very easy either nothing is easy karma yoga is not easy bhakti yoga is not easy raj yoga gnana yoga none of them is easy that is because all these four yogas challenge the outward going tendency of the mind and the senses the mind needs to be disciplined the mind needs to grow in purity the mind needs to turn toward the divine this is common to all the four yogas none of the four yogas will let the mind just run wild and at the same time promises union with god in all these four yogas disciplining the senses and the mind is a common factor but they are accomplished in different ways in the four yogas but that is the fundamental thing that is the first teaching that shri krishna gives arjuna in his long discourse in the gita third chapter after his discussion on desire where shri krishna says that this desire is our worst enemy it can never be satisfied it is the great devourer it robs us of our knowledge discrimination and what is the seat of this desire desire abides in the body in the senses in the manas in the buddhi so there shri krishna says take refuge in the atman know the atman and kill this desire and at the end of the chapter after this discussion on desire shri krishna gives this important teaching tasmat tvam indriyani adau niyamya bharatarshabha papmanam prajahihenam jnana vijnana nashanam therefore at the outset discipline your sensory system and kill this desire so there is the first teaching shri krishna gives of course in the second chapter he had told him about the atman doing karma yoga both these he describes but when it comes to brass tacks how to do work how to be a seeker in the way of knowledge shri krishna says therefore at the outset tasmat tvam indriyani adau adau means in the beginning that is the first discipline discipline your sensory system it is different in different yogas so here in this fourth discipline that shri krishna prescribes we take refuge in god we try to discipline the mind and the senses and do whatever we do as some kind of worship of god because it is to be offered to god at the end so this fourfold way of devotion makes it possible to turn the mind to the divine comparatively easily when we consider all the four yogas so the points we discussed today this world is a pair of opposites life in the world is characterized by happiness misery 
and such other pairs of opposites. And life in the world is due to Maya. Maya is a statement of fact which describes this world of contradictions, world of impossibilities. And Sri Krishna teaches in the Gita that only those who worship God can get over this Maya. And to get over this Maya, the way of devotion among the four yogas is a fairly easy method. That's because it helps us give a Godward orientation to our senses and the mind in a natural way. And we saw four stages of devotion taught by Sri Krishna in the Gita. First, fix your mind on me, fix your buddhi on me, and from then on, you will undoubtedly live in me. Second, if you cannot do it, take recourse to Abhyasa Yoga, Yoga of Practice. If you cannot do this also, do work for my sake. And doing work for my sake, we saw, involves worshipping God, assisting in worship of God. It also means trying to serve others in a spirit of worship of the Divine in them. All that means doing work for God's sake. If you cannot do this also, Sri Krishna says, here comes the fourth discipline. Do everything for my sake. Do everything for my sake. Whatever you do, do it as an offering to me. By that also, you will undoubtedly come to me. And there we saw, there are two more requirements. Take refuge in God and discipline your mind. And go about your work. Not letting the mind run riot, but keeping it in leash. Offering whatever we do, whatever we eat, whatever offerings we make, whatever austerities we perform. Doing everything, in short everything, our thoughts and actions to be offered to God, not worrying about the outcome. As Swami Vivekananda says, doing it with our whole mind, looking upon it as worship, as the highest worship. That is Swami Vivekananda's teaching, which pertains to the fourth teaching of Sri Krishna, which effectively means remembering God at all times. That is what Sri Krishna taught Arjuna. Therefore, constantly remember me at all times and fight this battle of life. So these are spiritual practices we find in the Gita which will help us turn ourselves toward the Divine. Thank you.